Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Assistant Professor of Medicine here at GW, Director of GW Center of Integrative Medicine and co-host of the new discussion series called HEART, Healing, Education, Art, Advocacy Roundtable. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we're talking about the medical humanities with Linda Raphael, PhD, who directs the medical humanities program and tract here at GW. Dr. Raphael brings to this discipline a background of teaching and scholarship in 19th and 20th century American and British literature, Holocaust literature, and philosophy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Raphael. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Raphael, what are the medical humanities and how would you define it and, and just open this topic for us with this question? In the medical humanities, students read things that are much unlike what they read in their medical school courses otherwise. They read stories about patients. They read stories about physicians. They see films about people from both those groups. Sometimes in the curriculum, there are uh, sessions for the whole class, not just those who take electives, to see see and listen to patients who come to discuss their problems uh, or to discuss a story even with a, a whole class of 180, which sounds not doable, but sometimes we do it. Uh, so it's it, all these things are about medicine, but some stories and things are less specifically about medicine, but more about being a person and what it feels like to be that particular person. So how did you get into the medical humanities? A, a bit by accident. I was, uh, my work was in narrative and narrative theory. In other words, theory of how stories are told and uh, looking at the way consciousness is represented in fiction. As a result of that, I was invited to a seminar, a three-day seminar at Columbia University called Narrative Medicine in 2003. I thought, what is this? Um, I was very interested. A friend of mine was giving a plenary talk. Uh, one of my daughters was a student there, so I thought, this is a time for me to go. And I became very excited about teaching a course in the medical school. After a couple of years of trying to find the right person to whom to speak about that, I was connected to uh, then-Dean Jim Scott, who's an emergency medicine physician and, as I say, was dean at the time. And he said to me, how about starting a program? And I thought, what, what? <laughs> me start a program? <laughs> and so we gave it a try, and it picked up. Uh, I had great support from Jim Scott and another man who was here at the time uh, and for a long time after that, Scott Schroth. And uh, those people from the dean's office were extremely supportive. So eventually we started a concentration for students who wanted to uh, be in what we sometimes called a track in medicine and humanities. In the revised curriculum, we got as I mentioned before, sessions in for all students. So began to spread around. And there was a lot of cooperation from faculty members at the medical school. It's really wonderful to hear about that support because, as you know, the medical school curriculum is so tight that trying to introduce anything that isn't hard science into it 
um, I think is challenging. It is very challenging. I still haven't quite gotten accustomed to some of some aspects of that, like the language you have to use on design worksheets and the kinds of things that are a bit unfamiliar to me, although course objectives were always a part of my work. This is, uh, in the medical school, it's a little bit different. What was that first class like? The first class back in the old days, it was wonderful. It was 2000, it was to the academic year 2005-06, and the first course was called First-Person Medicine, and there were a lot of stories by physicians in there, such as Atul Gawande, who's a great storyteller, and other physicians, and poetry, and so on. And it was, uh, it, it was very exciting. It's quite different to work with medical students rather than undergraduate students, because you're working with people in terms of what they will be doing in their lives. And that create that's a whole different dimension. And I would imagine dy- dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Linda, uh, how do the medical humanities impact patients' care? I think you've got a great word in that question, and that is care. And I, what I think is that we're helping, I hope we are helping, most of the students, if not all, but a large number of students, to think about how they may present themselves as caring about the patient. And I think that often in, involves knowing something about them. I remember a student who said, uh, he was going into pediatrics, and he said, you know, I used to shadow this pediatrician and he would go in the room and say to a kid, well, how's soccer? He said, but he was really cheating because he looked on the chart before to remind himself. And all of us in the class agreed that that wasn't cheating at all. That was an expression of, I care enough to look on the chart and to engage with this person and to recognize this child as an individual. And of course, you can't memorize what everybody does, but you can care about seeming to know who they are, and uh, they might even think that you remember having seen them before. So it, it sounds like, you know, with the current healthcare model putting more and more accent on a whole person care, and um, especially with places like entire uh, VA system, it sounds like uh, what your teachings are and what students learning from you, it fits perfectly within that model. Um, do you have any thoughts on sort of where this can go and um, how do you see the future of this? Well, I, I try to see the future of it very optimistically. Um, one of the, uh, one person whom I admire very much, uh, Dr. Johanna Shapiro, she's an, uh, an English professor, PhD like myself, not an MD doctor. She has a program at Irvine and Joanna published an article a while ago where she claimed that the reason for medical humanities is to create a doctor who knows what kind of doctor she wants to be. But that does not mean specialty. It doesn't mean that at all. It means what kind of person do I want to be as a physician? So, you know, obviously we can't dictate to different students what kinds of people they will be as physicians, but we can help them to figure that out, to think about what, what, 
what do I want to be like? What do I want to offer to my patients other than my expertise in medicine and science? So I think I, I think that is that is a goal. One of the difficulties we have is with uh, um, evaluating the results. So that's a big a big deal in medicine for good reason. However, testing whether you make better people is not allowed in the humanities. We just don't do that. We uh, we don't ask people to take philosophy and literature courses, and then we will test them on what kind of human beings they are, um, because that's not that's not our business. We test them on the content, on their their thinking about things. And I feel this way also with the medical students. It's presumptuous of us to think that we can figure out what kind of person somebody became because they studied, well, say, for example, we have visual arts in our program. What what did this do for them? Some of it has to be taken on faith. And as you can probably guess, Dr. Kogan, that, that's a hard sell to the medical school at times. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been on I've been around GW for quite some time and I still only feel like I'm only beginning to sense um you know, what's, what, what am I understanding of, you know, how, how do I interact with patients? What does that mean to me personally? It's probably a lifelong journey. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about this for personally for yourself. Uh, I, well, yesterday, and I have a class of fourth year students, I divided into two different sections, um, that meet one after the other. And there are about 35 to 40 students between the two sessions. And one young man who wasn't a concentrator in medical humanities, but has taken all the electives said to me, listen, do you have time to talk to me? Cause I want to figure out when I, a resident next year, how to get a medical humanities program started wherever I go. Wow. So I thought, well, that's good. And as uh, a poet anesthesiologist at Stanford University, who's very active in medical humanities, says there's a ripple effect. So maybe we don't reach each single person, but if we reach some people, they treat people differently, and maybe there's a ripple effect that we can count on. But it's hard to measure the ripple. So what does um, medical humanities look like for a first-year medical student? A first-year medical student starts off the year going to the Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C., and we are very fortunate. I can't. Uh, there are other cities that have small Holocaust museums, so we're very fortunate to have the museum here. And that visit uh, involves both humanities and ethics. The question, there are two things. One is the eugenics, the Nazi eugenics, and there were eugenics in America for sure. And they are introduced to that. Uh, they have a lecture on the um, euthanasia program in Germany, one that uh, involved the killing of many children, for example. And we have discussions at the museum as well as a lecture, and then back on campus about how it could have been that half of the medical profession in Germany willingly joined the Nazi party. Nobody forced anybody to join the Nazi party. Physicians who did not join were not punished. Physicians who did not follow out 
follow orders to uh, do harm to patients were not punished, but but they did these things. At least fifty percent of them, and they weren't they weren't uneducated. They weren't known to be cruel people before. How does this happen? And what happens in a professional field that uh, leads people to misbehavior? The museum has sessions for police, for uh, lawyers, for people in various professions, because they, I think, rightly feel that people in any profession are vulnerable to these kinds of moves that they aren't even aware they're making. Are you still on the hospital's um, ethics committee? No, I'm not. I was on it for a number of years, probably 10 or 12 years. And then because their meetings are on Wednesday and my elective classes are on Wednesday, it became impossible for me to attend. And they began to think that attendance mattered, and it does. <laughs> but I learned a great deal from being on the ethics committee. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. Well, hopefully things will come together and you'll be able to rejoin it sometime. I hope so. It sounds like you would be a wonderful addition to it. So, um, Dr. Fell, can you tell us a little bit about your research and writing on narrative and medicine? Yes. Um, most recent, I suppose it's one of the more recent things I did was uh, publish, have an article published in the AMA Joe, that's the AMA Journal of Ethics, and it was on uh, graphic medicine. That's an area I've become very interested in, and that is, to put it uh, more colloquially, comics in medicine. Just as Art Spiegelman wrote Mouse about his father's Holocaust experience, there are many people who write about either their own illness or an illness of a patient in a comic book form, a graphic medicine, graphic as you would call it, uh, because that's the thing they do. It's not that they think, well, that's the best way to talk about this, but they happen to be graphic artists. So um, I so I wrote about the ethics of that. I have been involved with a British group that uh, talks about and studies and reads about pain and emotion, and I published an article in a book or a chapter in a book on pain and emotion uh, using a couple of fictional stories to to represent that. So those are two areas. Then I've, I've published some on the classes. We have short essays in collections about um, medicine and humanities and how they're taught in the schools. I, I still do write about fiction because I, I don't want to lose my just fictional world. And Henry James is the person I concentrate on uh, the most. You need to do those things that feeds your spirit and your soul. Yes, yes, exactly. And Henry James has some wonderful stories about illness and, and a great story about a doctor called The Middle Years. It's really terrific. So it sounds like one of the things we need to do when we finally go live with this podcast is include maybe a reading list that you could give us that we could share with our listeners. Ah, that would be a good idea. Yes. Definitely do that. Yeah. And so, one, one thing I didn't mention, you might want to put in, we have sessions in all the clerkships. I have sessions. No, I do them myself. But in all the clerkships, well, I think we haven't done OB-GYN in the last year or so, but... We have sessions in in the clerkships, and, and yesterday the medicine clerkship students uh, drew with markers and colored paper. They drew themselves or a patient 
that was on their mind. And it leads to a very full discussion. They have a lot to say after they have 10 minutes to draw something. So one of the things that um, Misha is doing is he is co-hosting this new roundtable, Heart, that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And the focus is on bringing together um, people in medicine, people in the humanities, people in um, policy, uh, but most importantly, the patients. So um, what what advice would you have for Misha, who is starting this new roundtable? Oh, my. Well, you will include, well, you will include the visual arts, Misha. Well, absolutely. That's... Uh hopefully one of the topics that's going to be in the first categories and first rounds of tables. You know, we have at at GW now, we have the Corcoran Gallery. And uh, I have made use of the Corcoran Gallery. And the curator there is, is Lenore Miller is very interested in helping out in medical things because the gallery there, the the collection comes from the Brady Gallery that was started by Dr. Brady, who graduated from GW. And uh, he started the gallery here, gave a lot of art, himself became an artist, and he died a year or so ago at the age of 100. Mm. Sounds like we should have one of the roundtables there, Misha. Yeah, and Lenore would do that. And I was going to add also, uh, Linda. I don't. I don't know if you already met uh, JD Talasic, uh, our first moderator of the uh, Heart Roundtable, and JD is the director of Arts and Sciences at National Academies of Sciences, who uh, gotten very interested in bridging the arts and medicine, um, and also helping through his program. Um, to work with us, it's it's quite oh, exciting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't know. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you and Misha together. But you all are familiar with each other um, because you both lead uh, scholarly concentration tracks. Right. Yeah. Right. In other mm-hmm. places, I think I met Misha when he was early on here. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while ago. Yeah. How long? Um, uh, 13, 13 years. Yeah. So when I was just about first doing this program, Misha was here and we met. Misha, did you take anything in the medical humanities when you were in med school or your residency? Yes. yes. So as a medical student um, at Drexel University uh, College of Medicine, we had a a humanity elective uh, that was uh, so at this point, it's almost 17 or 18 years ago. And um, it, it actually paralleled, I think, what Dr. Raphael's uh, class is doing. Um, you know, we went to a museum and I'm trying to recollect. It's been a while ago. Uh, and um, yeah, but I still have some memories of specific points at the class and sort of specific parts that um, had a pretty profound impact on, on my life. And, and that's actually quite important. It's not just on my career, but on my life. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Raphael, how do you incorporate the medical humanities into physician wellness, especially with the burnout epidemic? Um, well, one thing, one thing I do is discourage students from uh, too much use of the term burnout, because I feel it's a term that can cause one to to <laughs> okay. over to over diagnose one's condition 
you know, where, where you're feeling tired, but that's normal. Where you feel like, why am I doing this? I should have done something else. These things are normal. And when we start to identify all these things as burnout, then I think we have trouble. On the other hand, over the years, I have had medical students who have uh, confronted serious emotional, psychological problems being in medical school, and they haven't always gotten what they felt was appropriate attention and treatment. So I think maybe the overstatement of it now will lead to more treatment, more acknowledgement, and then a sort of pulling back on the term. I have, uh, that isn't a favorite term of mine, and maybe you won't like this. Well, then let's just focus on physician wellness. Yes, right. Well, the other one is empathy. Um, Medical students are told to have empathy, and that having concern for your patients, I think, leads to wellness rather than just, you know, seeing one after another after another. But I think the term empathy is overused and is not um, is not correctly uh, interpreted because we have a couple other words, compassion and sympathy, that are more common and don't involve the sort of putting yourself in the place of the other, etc., but having compassion and having sympathy for the other, I think, is is very significant. Empathy is another matter, and students sometimes get a little tired of being told that they must have empathy. That is all the time we have for today. Linda, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks for listening.